Voyagen, season three. And I love Boy. Enjoyable. It's remarkable. Lindsay. Elizabeth's Will, third season of Voyager. The purpose of all this is to gain knowledge of the universe and the people in it. You two are turning into a Star Trek script. Yes, it is a little bit clucky, but hopefully it will pay off in the long run. Welcome to Voyager, a theological journey. And it's great to have you with us as we explore this three-person triangulated love affair. And to help us with our synopsis today, um, I thought we might bring us uh, a tribute to Ray Parker Jr.'s I'm in love with the other woman, but instead I'm in love with a hollow simulation. I'm in love. I'm in love with a hollow simulation. My life was fine until she blew my mind. Who would have thought... Um, one day on the hollow suite could turn into such a hot romance. Well, she did it to me. I slipped and fell in love. I'm in love with the hollow simulation. Well, I think this this uh, episode started well, and uh, I was quite excited because uh, you know one of my favourite topics is is um, you know. Uh, uh, computerized and uh, hollow people and uh, the different ways in which that allows us to explore what it is to be human. So it was a bit of a disappointment when uh, it turned out to be a Wizard of Oz sort of situation with someone uh, behind the curtain uh, manipulating the, the hollow character. Well, that did surprise me, I have to say, because I took it at face value and thought it was just a holodeck character. And as um, I think it was um, Tom said, all of us fall in love with a holodeck character at one time or another, which I thought was funny. Um, yes, but to find this this um, alien woman sitting there in the middle of a nebula whose sole aim in life was to keep it looking beautiful for passers-by, I thought that was a bit, you know, it stretched the credulity bone, put it that way. And talk about not matching the Tinder photo. Uh, I say um, there was an issue there, and and uh, I mean this 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 is really a case of galactic catfishing. Uh, not the not the kind of catfishing we've done before, obviously in Voyager, but uh, but certainly you know the whole idea of of projecting an image that's different to oneself is was very interesting to explore in this episode. Yes, it, it is. And uh, I mean, I, I think uh, just coming back to my in, initial idea that, you know, this was actually uh, a hollow character. I mean, I, I always thought that uh, she was more than just a normal hollow character. And it was interesting at one point when the first of those strands in the nebula sort of um, flared off uh, um, and, uh, and, and then didn't uh, start a chain reaction, the thing that occurred to me is that it reminded me of a brain, you know, with the different synapses firing. And, and, and I was trying to remember the episode and thinking, is there a brain actually, you know, in the nebula that's controlling uh, this holodeck character, which I think would have actually been a, a far more been interesting much better writing. Yeah. Uh, idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I figured the nebula had to have something to do with it because it was behaving in an unexpected way. But, of course, Voyager couldn't stay out of trouble, could they? They just <laughs> had to go and stick their nose in it, as per usual, where it didn't belong, and it always gets them into trouble. They never learn. 
Well, it did have a purpose. I mean, they were talking about how if they understood the damping field that could allow them to set up uh, good, uh, you know, safety protocols for their own uh, warp plasma and so forth. It wasn't, My gosh. wasn't Get just a fire exploring. extinguisher, people. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, do they, do they really need this, this, you know, just because we can do it in a different way doesn't necessarily mean it's a better way. I mean, I... I I think they get a bit carried away with their exploration stuff sometimes. I'll I'll give you that, Elizabeth. A bit carried oh, no. away. I'm, I'm pro-exploration. <laughs> I know you love it, Lindsay, but, you know, sometimes it does wear a bit thin. And I figured the nebula, of course, was stopping them escape, of course, because that, that's happened before or similar things have happened before. I did not expect to find, you know, Ms. Wizard of Oz there uh, sitting up there in the nebula who – for, an, for this species, and I'm, I don't think we're ever told what species they are, to send someone into a space station with the whole aim in and purpose of being to stop this self-destruction because it's pretty? Really? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's conservation, isn't it? That, that's that's uh, <laughs> uh, the conserving, conserving the, the, the nebula and all its wonder and beauty. I mean, uh, certainly there's an environmental statement being made here by... Um, by by assigning somebody such a task. Isn't it like putting a lid on a volcano? Oh, maybe. But they seem to have it uh, pretty taped down. But the the thing that um, actually that reminded me of, because uh, it, it, it wasn't entirely clear when she first says this, whether she had chosen this life or she'd sort of been assigned it, you know, and, and I think later she gives the impression that she's chosen it because of her extreme... Uh, introversion or whatever it is, but but at, at the start when it wasn't quite clear, it reminded me of an Isaac Asimov uh, short story called Strike Breaker, um, which is about a society which has become very stratified um, in a in a sort of a caste system based on your occupation, and each each um, you know family passes their occupation down to their uh, children, and and um, there's one particular uh person um who whose role is to do the waste collection for uh this huge mega city and and uh he has nothing to do with it you know physically it's it's all totally automated and he sits in a booth and controls a computer that 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 uh does the the waste uh, collection and disposal or recycling or whatever it is but whatever it is a part of the caste system has become that he is an untouchable uh, and that no one in the society will have anything to do with him, and so he's totally lonely and 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 goes on strike. And uh, and uh, a diplomat, uh, you know, from another uh, culture is brought in to try and deal with this situation because the waste is backing up and they they can't can't carry on. But this fellow refuses to go back to work because no one wants to talk to him. And and in the end, the only way to to solve it is that the that the the diplomat. Uh, steps in and does the role for a, a short while, and and they then realise that they can call in strike breakers at any time, and the fellow gives up. Um, uh, but the diplomat is then ejected from the country because he's now an untouchable, having having been the person to do it. So it reminded me of that, you know, this this person put in an untenable situation by a society for their good, but not for the good of the person necessarily. 
got the impression more that she had volunteered for a role that existed, not that she'd created it, because I assume putting space stations together to float around in nebulas, stopping them imploding, is um, an expensive um, enterprise. But she found the role appealing because of her extreme introversion and she'd actually volunteered for it rather than created it. But, I mean, that's ambiguous, I grant you. I did wonder about the Prime Directive. Um, uh, you know, Tuvok may have just completely changed this entire sector of the, the area because of his, uh, and I quote, failure to respond to the complexity of someone's emotions. Um, <laughs> you know, like there's a, he, he does say that to Harry Kim later, but there's this sense in which, you know, it was very easy for him to say, look, I think maybe you should, um, you know, return to your home. people. Um, leave your post, suddenly an entire sector of the galaxy is going to explode into bright light and that may have profound effects on this part of the galaxy. Thanks, Tuvok. I don't agree with that at all, Will, because I think it was a post that was existing because they wanted it there. I'm assuming that she would think about leaving and she would be replaced. So I don't think Tuvok is going to be responsible for the whole galaxy imploding in that part. <laughs> I, I do think that that was an interesting uh, comment, uh, Will, because um, you, you've highlighted what for me um, was a little little glitch, which is Tuvok uh, saying to the woman, "I don't have a complete understanding of emotions," um, you know, as as if that was a, an incapacity he had, uh, and I don't think that fits either the story we've been told about Tuvok that actually he does have emotions, and in fact, Vulcans have emotions to a greater extent, but uh, uh, suppress them and so forth. But it also doesn't fit with what has happened already in this episode, where the whole first section is about Tuvok telling Kim that, you know, if he just understood emotions like Vulcans did, uh, you know, it, it would all be okay and, and he wouldn't have to worry about his, uh, you know, falling in love. Maybe he was making a cultural admission as well as a personal admission. Um, mm. But I, I did find that a bit loose as well because I, I don't have a complete understanding of emotions, do you? I mean, <laughs> if you can find me someone who's got a complete understanding of emotions, I, I'd love to sit down with them because um, because they don't make a lot of sense to me. Well, I figured with Tuvok that he spends so much time being busy suppressing them that it could have been a true statement that, if you spend a lot of time having to sit on top of your emotions, you may get to a point where unpacking them or understanding them could become difficult. Yeah. And that's why professional supervision for ministers and psychologists <laughs> and doctors is actually such a vital and important um, part of, of um, continued and sustained ministry. Uh, we've said that before, but I, I, it, it does come up here again under that umbrella that, that – um, that we we do have to deal with these emotions we don't understand and we can't really deal with them effectively without um, support and structures to be able to help us to do that. And, and I'm going to um, uh, go and uh, uh, just suggest to Sydney Presbytery that we write into our supervision guidelines that uh, having a friendly game of Calto with your local Vulcan is not appropriate supervision. You really need to see a professional. 
<laughs> Did anyone suggest it was Lindsay? <laughs> oh, I don't, we've had we've had all sorts of suggestions, uh, Elizabeth. Surely you've come across the well. You know, I know he's my brother-in-law, but he is a minister, so surely that counts. Sort of conversations, oh, and, and the group of people heading out for a game of golf, making them appropriate for supervision. Oh, it terrible! You terrible. need it has to be far more intentional than that. I have to say too, on the issue of games, um, I was very disappointed with the way that Calto was used, and, and and not disappointed in the way that it was incorrect, but but it, it was one of the aspects of games and gamification that can become problematic, and that's where games become uh, a gatekeeping boundary. That that uh, I've been in situations with board gamers, and and maybe I've been guilty of this myself of saying. Oh, I'm sorry, but this game is just far too complicated for you. Um, <laughs> and it can be a kind of classist snobbery. It can be a, a process by which we um, eliminate people from being a part of a particular situation because, uh, look, and I will, I'll confess there are times where I just don't want to be around um, particular kinds of people, I'll pull out a game I know that will cause them to flee to the other side of the room <laughs> so that so that I can just be a part of a part of a group of people who who is who is committed to a high complexity of games that the normal um, plebe masses can't cope with. You're probably talking about me there, Will, and I'm sure when you pulled out that game when we were at your place in Tasmania, it was one of your simpler ones because of our inability to compute the more complex things. But I've always assumed my inability to compute some of the understood rules of these more complex games was simply I'd never have an opportunity to play them. It doesn't mm. mean I can't do them. It just means mm. I need time to learn them. Absolutely. And, and you do raise, I think, a really interesting question, uh, Will, which is the way that we use all sorts of different um, capacities or experiences as exclusionary devices, you know, so uh, it, it might be, oh, you know, you're not up to playing this game, but it, it could also be, oh, yes, but if you really look at the original Greek, you'll see that dot, 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 and whatever you're arguing mm -hmm. is just, you know, a, a, an amateur, amateur, um, you know, thing not worth worthy of my attention so we we use these um you know different uh, social abilities to put down others and exclude others in all sorts of um uh, different ways and and i think it's a, a really important thing to note and to try and guard against are you saying it's inappropriate to suggest that true doctor who fans actually start <laughs> right from the very beginning and don't just start with christopher eccleston ah uh, yes well you know i don't want to get into that <laughs> no, I watched it from the beginning, being older than both of you. I, I say it's essential. Mm. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to give a shout-out to my, my good elite gamer friends who uh, last night we were in our were in our, our uh, continuing saga of the GMT game um, Pendragon. We've been uh, getting through one epoch a night um, and it has eight epochs in the game. So... Uh, come uh, five weeks from now, we may have a resolution to this particular game. Um, that will probably add up to being about, oh, what's eight times three, 24 hours of gameplay to complete this one singular game. And uh, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. At this stage, it's hard to tell who might be winning. Well, if you're enjoying it and people are enjoying it, I think that's good. And I think it would be reasonable for you to exclude someone from that game at this point if it's a sequential thing and you need to understand what went before and everyone's now got their role and you've got to build on what went before. So I think that we can use these 
presuppositions and um, these genres we find ourselves working in as exclusion zones. But I also understand that if you're halfway through something and to complete it relies on that knowledge that you've built up as you've gone along, then it isn't probably appropriate to bring someone in until you start it next time around. And let's face it, it is a good feeling to look across the room and see people whispering and gesturing, and gesturing in our direction saying, <laughs> don't go over there, they're the elite gamers, they're playing a, a, a serious game. Um, uh, and certainly there was a bit of that going on last night as we sat in our, our corner um, rolling our dice and, uh, and uh, getting excited over cards drawn. Well, I, I, I have to say that uh, after um, trying to teach uh, uh, the family a particularly crunchy Vital Lacerda game, uh, Suzanne now tells her friends that the explanation took 24 hours, let alone the game. <laughs> and there's a lot like that. I ended up, we gave a game to Will because we bought it because I'd been misled by the description on it. And I'm sure it would have been easy had I been a gaming type person and understood that certain games function on certain rules and how they work. I didn't. I probably would have had to study it for weeks, which I decided took all the fun out of it. So I, I thought Will could put it to better use. And, and just... a fantastic a fantastic game it is, Elizabeth, <laughs> uh, based on Ghostbusters using the same uh, engine as Zombicide with an amazing sound <clears throat> mechanic. Um, so uh, if you're uh, if you're looking for something that's slightly less zombie but with a similar kind of mechanic to Zombicide, then uh, this Ghostbuster game would be a fantastic one for you. I'll just stick to Monopoly, Snakes and Ladders and Scrabbles, thanks. <laughs> <clears throat> It'll just be easier. Coming back to the episode, uh, I, I have to say I didn't really like the way that Tuvok was drawn in this episode. I think... You know, like he's he's a real stick in the mud. He turns up to the party, and uh, as uh, Morena actually points out, you know, refuses to wear a lay and is wearing his uniform, and uh, just generally being, you know, a, a bit of a stick in the mud um, for no good reason. And you know, it, it seemed like um, it was purely a plot device that she had to be able to point out that he was acting like oh. this. I'm sorry, Lindsay, have you met Tivo? That's I mean, right. That was exactly his character. That's what he does. He no, was no, but, because Janeway said she expected him to be there and he took it as an order. Well, that's true. But, I mean, if you look at the other Vulcan, whatever his name is, I can't remember, Vorik, is it? Um, Vorik, yes. Sir. Yep. Uh, he is able to get along socially with humans without the prickliness, isn't he? I mean, he's still acting logical. He's still not, you know, um, getting into human emotions. But but he actually uh, skates, uh, to use a metaphor they used in the episode, he skates across the top of human emotions and it doesn't bother him, whereas Tuvok seems to get all hot and bothered by the idea that he has to deal with these humans and their and their emotions. I find the younger Vulcan, what's his name again? Vorik. Or Vorik. Actually very unvulcan like He seems almost normal. Um, <laughs> and I think that it's not so much that Tuvok is different as that Horik is different. He seems like a younger generation. He's more relaxed or something. Oh, he's the younger generation that can get with the vibe. <laughs> something like that, Lindsay. That's how he struck me. He's like gen he's like a millennial compared to some of those. <laughs> millennial Vulcan. <laughs> One of the things that I think is really fascinating about our conversation, and it's really easy to do, is that we're, we're quite happy to talk about Vulcans this and Klingons that, and and um and. But if I were to actually say Asians 
if I were to say uh, Europeans, Africans, um, I, I'd be in danger of actually mm. using unconscious bias to create othering stereotypes. Um, and, and so there's, it's really fascinating that when we get out of this space and we come into a more cosmic place, it, it's, it feels almost appropriate to say, oh, Vulcans are like this and this one doesn't measure up. Or Cardassians. This yeah, yeah. Oh, well, Cardassians <laughs> are a different kettle of fish there. But that's, Especially the sort that are on TV at the moment. <laughs> no, not, not Cardassians. Uh, no, not, Car- not Cardassians. 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 Yeah. Right. <laughs> Will Will has a, an inimical hatred of Cardassians and sees them as you know uh, no good and, and and up to no good at all times. Can can anything good come out of Cardassia? <laughs> no, not when we saw that woman. She was dreadful. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean not, that's not entirely true. I, I am actually going to be recording with uh, super fan, mega fan Michelle Kaufman in a couple of weeks' time. We're going to be doing the episode where Bashir and Garrick are actually entering the holodeck to do a James Bond oh, right, uh, yes. routine, um, and so uh, the Garrick character absolutely fascinating, yes. um, and, uh, and and a Cardassian. But maybe, maybe just like you know Vorik or others, um, we're actually attracted to the caricatures and the non-standard versions of stereotypical um, groupings. I suppose for me, I've only known two Balkans, and that's been uh, Spock and our current friend Tuvok. So all my knowledge about Vulcans is drawn from those two characters and and our younger friend is just doesn't act like either of them. He's much more relaxed. That's why I wondered if it was a generational thing. Give him time. His his Vulcanness will come out. <laughs> I'm sure in it dis- will. In disturbing ways. <laughs> oh dear. I don't like that. I don't like the way you're sort of um, putting that forward, Will. Because he's so likable at the moment. He does, he does, and that uh, that's obviously part of the uh, the character arc. But uh, I mean, I, I hate to be offensive, and you know, I'll probably get howled down. But I do want to point out that in fact, Vulcans aren't real. That would seem to be self evident. And and so I think you know, in this whole thing about characterization and, and stereotypicalizing or whatever <laughs> the word would be. Um, that that in fact Vulcans and Cardassians and all of these other creatures are ways for us to think about human characteristics. You know, what is it to be uh, that kind of person and how do we deal with our emotions and, and what might we learn uh, for good or for ill when we imagine uh, what a, a Vulcan is like or whatever. So I, I think it, it's interesting and I, I certainly take your point, Will, that, you know, if we were to do this uh, sort of generalising with um, other human um, groups, that would that would not necessarily be helpful. But um, But I think in this case, they are written to be caricatures of certain aspects of, of human behavior and emotion and whatever. Irrelevant. The emotional complex in which you are trapped is the same. And so is the cure. Logical deconstruction. I can't believe what I've just heard. I, I was <laughs> under the impression that all Star Trek was God-breathed and useful for instruction and, and, and education. Teaching, rebuking, correcting. <laughs> been reading the pastorals again, Will. It's never <laughs> But but I agree with you. Although it it does seem a little bit of a discriminatory position to hold that just because something isn't real, it doesn't mean that we can actually um, treat it with respect. Uh, so um, I, I think there's learning 
in this for us because of the the arm's length that a that a piece of fiction can actually provide for us. And look, dare I say, um, you know, joking about uh, the scriptures just a moment ago, but in a lot of ways, the scriptures should hold a similar position of arm's length fiction for us, so that they can actually be. Um, more effective in helping us to be able to understand um, our, our own condition and what it means for us to live in um, in, in faithful ways. Well, I think that's absolutely correct because some of the characters in our scriptures, I mean, Adam and Eve notably spring to mind. I, 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 you're really hard-pressed to make an argument these are real people, as it were, but they're there as for useful instruction and whatever else the rest of that quote from Timothy says. Um to teach us something about ourselves and the human condition. So I absolutely agree with that. I was listening to a really interesting discussion this week about the difference between fan service and mythos building. Um, and in fact, I actually think the two are actually very similar to each other. Um, but but one is used in a derogatory sense and the other one sounds awesome. Um, uh, so I think that there's this kind of, yeah, a danger of, 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 of losing the balance there because I think that, that it is important for us to be able to, to without guilt, um, build mythos so that we can actually understand what it is we need to understand. Yeah, and I think the other thing that um, I, I think is really important when we approach the scriptures is recognising the arm's length nature of the fact that they are documents that are, you know, 2,000 or more years old. Uh, written in entirely different cultures and different settings. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's it's too easy, certainly for me, the way I was brought up, to sort of see the, the Bible as, you know, God's personal letter to me, Lindsay Cullen, in the 20th century at the time. Um, and and not to recognise, well, actually, no, this is this is you know the um, reflections of a Stone Age tribe, uh, you know, working out what it is to survive in a in a in a brutal uh, sort of time in Earth's history, and 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 that that ability to sort of shrink that arm's lengthness, I think, uh, does a disservice to it because um, you know we we take the the scriptures out of all historical context. I think that's absolutely right. And, um, I mean, it's probably parts of it are even older than 2,000 years, you know, they may be 4,000 years, some parts of it. And to think that we can take and put at our service without interpretation the cultic um, rituals and laws, um, the social structures, the political structures, the day-to-day life reality of these ancient people and just take it out of its context and put it at our service because we want to read it a certain way is to really do violence to the text and not not to actually pay it respect and not to to really engage with it in a way that it can actually reveal what's hidden within it. You know, that's what I love about this podcast. Um, uh, that was one heck of a rabbit hole we just went down. Uh, how on earth did we end up on this, this, the, the discussion about the, the scriptures based on a love triangle between Tuvok, uh, a holodeck character, and Harry Kim? But um, all of it really, really good stuff. And, and it's actually almost impossible to predict where we're going to end up when we actually begin talking about these ideas that that we could um, – this the, this – the, these texts that we're exploring here today can actually take us to unexpected places. And I, but I, I think we probably need to return to the text. Um, and uh, I was wondering about uh, the concept of 
love by force. Um, uh, at the end of the episode, we actually have the situation where Moreno is actually saying, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold you to ransom so that you will love me." Um, this this is a really um, a, a, a really uh, an interesting area of of uh, the nature of love. Well, it says something about her isolation. Um, it says it says as much about the nature of her lack of interaction, not only with her own species but any other species, and mm. her lack of understanding that love actually can't be forced in that way. I mean, she gets it by the end, but it takes a bit of you know talking on Tuvok's part to get her to see that you know you can hold on to something, but that doesn't mean he's going to reciprocate in any way that will be a satisfactory to her. Um, and she just doesn't understand that. She's been in control of her own universe for so long that she has no concept about it, which kind of belies how she's been acting in the holodeck when she's been that character where she's quite insightful, she's very engaging, she's intelligent. Um, I mean, when it comes down to nitty-gritty, that kind of all goes out the window, those skills that she showed in that uh, different scenario. Yeah, I, I mean, I think for me the um, the realization that this is actually a, a, a person uh, playing through the the holodeck character um, helped me to make sense of it because before that um, I, I was thinking to myself, yeah, it, it's so inconsistently written that Morena um, is able to connect with Tuvok by using the kinds of things that would be attractive to Tuvok, you know, mm. intellect and, uh, and and puzzle and and insight and and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, like when she's in his um, in his uh, residence um, in his room, uh, she turns into the sort of stereotypical feminine wiles, you know, bit whingy and clingy, and you know. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not at all what's going to be attractive to Tuvok. Why have you lost the very thing that that was enabling you to make that connection with him? Uh, you know, and and gone into this uh, much more uh, human, stereotypical sort of approach and. And, uh, yeah, so it made sense then when you realise that actually it is a, a person battling their own emotions rather than uh, a an actual holodeck, a computer subroutine, which is able to work out what would be attractive to Tuvok. Mm. Well, she lapses, I suppose, from playing the role into her desperate need. And that's the that's the very essence of gaslighting. I mean, uh, there's been a number of um, investigations into... Uh, p particularly men who are who who predator predatorily gaslight women, um, and um, they can't sustain the the image for forever. Um, and in the end, the truth of who they really are actually presents itself, and there is great hurt and pain that actually comes from that. And I mean, sometimes it's about fraud, and it's about money, and it's about lifestyle. Sometimes it's about sex, and it's about um, relationships, but. But there are others, other times where it's it's really just about playing the role, um, wishing that I was well, they were different to what they are, um, and and I think a lot of role playing is actually about being able to try on something different. I mean, Lindsay, I know that you're not a uh, a slow witted, uh, bad joke telling barbarian, um, <laughs> but uh, you do an excellent job of it in exegetical role. Well, yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you, sh you shock me. 
Another thing that um, occurred to me as I was watching this uh, episode was um, particularly when the doctor uh, is on the, the holodeck. The life of a recreational hologram. Dining, dancing, non-restrictive clothing. I see the allure. And, and you might remember that he's got a, a beautiful woman on either side of him uh, that he's, uh, he's uh, kissing. And it, it raised for me the question about, um, you know, these these uh, fictional uh, sort of aspects of exploration and to what extent is that an appropriate way to explore things that might be inappropriate in real life and to what extent is it inappropriate because it actually uh, is shaping you or, or, or forming you in certain ways. You know, can can you be a slut on the holodeck without consequence or or is that, uh, you know, equally morally reprehensible to uh, acting like that in real life? I think that's a really good question. And I think that um, the, I would say the answer to your question is no because it then starts to, if you act like that, it has to impinge on your normal everyday activity and it has to impinge on how you start presenting to others and how you interact with others. And it may set up unnecessarily nasty kind of trays that you fall into if you become too serious about your role acting on the holodeck, if that makes sense. I think it would be a dangerous game to play to think you can be one thing here and then try and be something completely different somewhere else without the two intersecting and influencing how you behave. And this is the essence of the discussion around violence in video games, um, uh, you know, uh, first-person shooting games um, that are extraordinarily immersive. Um, there are some who suggest that playing these games regularly may cause you to become a person um, of, of violence. Uh, it makes me remember back, Elizabeth, to the um, Deep, Deep Faith Nine episode we did where Odo attempts to um, curb the violent intentions of the Jem'Hadar he's mm. attempting to mentor by providing him with holodeck violent outbursts. And the and in the end, the Jem'Hadar says, no, this is not enough. This doesn't work for me. But uh, it's, it's a fascinating debate um, and one that, that I've given a lot of thought to because I do actually enjoy... Um, what many might consider to be violent video games. Um, and um, I, I certainly have no urge to uh, take up arms and uh, take out everybody in the post office. <laughs> well, I'm pleased to hear that, Will. Um, I mean, some re the research, I'm not sure exactly what the nature of the research is and what status it's reached at the moment, but there was links to violence um, of certain kinds of games, I thought, now, that, I might be wrong about that, but it's not so much you're just doing a shoot 'em up kind of Pac-Man thing where, you know, you just see little kind of figures running along and go boom, boom, boom. It's, it's, it's sort of, you know, veins in your teeth and eating dead burnt bodies, as Arlo Guthrie once said, and those really um, very um, violent and extremely detailed kind of games where you enter into doing something that's really nasty. Yep. that may have an effect. But I don't know the current status of that research at the moment. I, I, when, when you talk about, you know, sort of bringing it into reality, I'm reminded of when I was at uni, university and, and uh, got involved in LARPing, uh, live action role playing. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, we never went into it uh, to a, a huge degree, but it was like we would play uh, assassination games where the idea was that you would have to set up an assassination, you know, by by um, 
waiting in 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 the right place and ambushing someone and flicking them with a a rubber band or or uh, having a a a bucket of water that fell on their head you know that could be acid or you know whatever it was and it, it is interesting and I mean I, I wonder to what extent the immersiveness uh, plays into this so you know your your point earlier will about role playing games and the different characters we take on you know I'm as well as uh, being a dim-witted barbarian or whatever, in some role-playing situations, I might play an evil character who's sort of, you know, out to backstab people and, and steal and, and whatever. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, is that something playful in thinking about uh, a, a possibility, which, as you said, I have no intention of, of bringing into my uh, real behaviour, um, uh or is it something, as Elizabeth is suggesting, that might shape my behaviour? And you know, I'll find myself standing behind a woman one day and think, "Oh, I could reach into her pocket and and pull out her uh, wallet, just like I do as my uh, rogue in in whatever uh, D and D campaign." And I think that's the line um, that that line between reality and fantasy. There's an interesting. So neither fantasy or reality are actually, I guess, moral. It's it's actually about when they cross over into mm. each other. Um, and and I have to say there is something disturbing about the lines between reality and fantasy, especially with the Doctor in this particular series, yeah. this um, episode, because um, I did read that Robert Picardo directed this episode, which means <laughs> that, that that scene in the holodeck where he gets to kiss passionately one of the holodeck characters was uh, under his direction. Um, and I wonder whether or not there was a conflict of interest there for uh, Robert Picardo in the way that that particular scene was filmed. I think that's a fair question. I did not realise he'd directed it. I didn't read my notes this week. Um, and I thought in some ways it was kind of sending the Doctor up and, you know, how he carried – when you look at where he was when we first met him to where he is now and now he's looking for things of the flesh to uh, amuse himself with um, – mm. I guess he kind of gets away with it because he is a holograph himself. But I agree, Will. It is slightly disturbing, I think. From that- a meta-fourth wall perspective, he appears to have actually misused his power to get something for himself. Uh, yes. That, that, that was- anyway, look, I, I don't want to malign Robert Picardo any more than that. And perhaps we can get Robert on to um, uh, defend the, the, the situation or confirm for us um, that situation at some stage in the future. Well, that would be fun. <laughs> I'd, I'd vote for that and I'd be very happy to talk to him about that um, or anything else that we thought was good. But what about Harry in this episode? We kind of mm, left him out of we've this. We've left Harry. Harry, And Harry, not really Harry. talked about him and I think we should because he starts the whole mess off. And I, I agree with Lindsay. It's pretty clear early on that, you know, this is not a normal holodeck character that we've met before. I mean, there's more substance, if you like, to her conversation and her perception and the way she interacts with the others, far more substance than I think we're used to meeting in holodeck characters, which have been fairly, you know, one or two dimensional to this point. And I can see how Harry's been sucked in with this. And But there's no mention of his fiancée or... It's not, yeah, I was going to ask about Libby. Yeah, yeah, you know, where he's been so dedicated to her in former episodes. And, yeah, I found it a little bit curious because he's resisted the wiles of those twin sisters that Tom keeps wanting him to go on dates with and, and suddenly he falls for a holodeck character, um, which seemed to me a bit out of character for him. 
Well, and I wonder whether that, uh, I mean, this is all headcanon, of course, but I, I, I wonder whether, in fact, it's the, the fact that the person is a holodeck character which um, uh, seduces Harry into going further than he might otherwise and, and thus becoming attracted. Because I think, uh, you know, we... we uh, normally sort of have, have have certain barriers that are in place where we think I, I should not do this kind of activity with this person because uh, that, you know, would be inappropriate or could lead me to uh, think inappropriately about them. But if they're a holodeck character, maybe maybe the same scruples didn't immediately um, come up for Harry yeah. and, and, and so mm -hmm. he sort of got in further than he realised uh, too late. Yeah, I think that's a fair point because when you're on a, these holodecks and they enter into, you know, characters in novels because he'd put himself as Beowulf once before and the hero of this epic Nordic saga. So um, obviously he has a flair for some passion and drama when he's given um, free reign on it uh, on the holodeck. So, you know, that may be quite perceptive, I think, Lindsay, that's right about Harry. It just became easier for those barriers not to be as sharp and not to be as, um, you know, holding him back as they normally would. But, uh, I mean, I do wonder too whether uh, this is all part of uh, exploring what is it to be the crew of the Voyager who are at least nominally, you know, 70 years away from home. So uh, in, in some episodes, they very overtly play with that and ask the question of, you know, are they going to hang on to old ties or are they going to, uh, make uh, new relationships. Uh, maybe this is just a, a way of exploring that, but without overtly talking about it, just saying, you know, well, if, if you are Harry and, and you think you might never see Libby again, what does that do to the way you might interact? Yeah. It is fascinating too. Uh, I've been doing a, um, a study with a Bible study group at, 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 in my community and we've been looking at 1 Corinthians. And um, this week we're actually looking at that part where Paul gives his opinion and makes it very clear at the beginning that says, this is not a directive from the Lord, but something I think, um, that in difficult times, in times of crisis and, um, and struggle, um, as, as was around at the time when the Corinthians letter was written, that it that it's better for people not to be in relationships. That um, that uh, that they actually should stay away from each other. And it, I mean, it's it's amazing how that piece of um, writing has been used to justify all kinds of weird things in the church um, without taking into the context. But but Voyager does find itself in a place that is abnormal, and the question about relationships um, is is something that um, is far more complex than it would be if they were in a standard starship. I think that's true. And I'm wondering about Chakotay and um, the captain because they seem to be physically getting closer and closer and closer. Every time we watch an episode, he's standing in her space, as it were, or what it would be my personal space anyway if, if I was Janeway, that he's standing in and there's more. It just seems to me they're more relaxed with each other. There's more familiarity. I'm just waiting for this relationship to unfurl as we go on through the seasons. But, I think so um, was Robert Beltran. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think, you know, if you do some reading, uh, I think uh, Robert Beltran, not, not that he had anything particular about um, 
the actor, uh, but that that he thought that that would be a natural way of exploring uh, the character and the relationship. And I think he was a bit disappointed that uh, it seems like the writers uh, didn't share that and it kind of got dropped. But I agree with you. I mean, you look at this episode and and it's not just Chakotay. It's, you know, Janeway has, has looped her arm around his and they're clearly at the luau together. I mean, not necessarily on a date, but, but you know, he is her her partner there at that event. Um, and uh, the the other thing that I noted was the the um, the romantic tension uh, and and a bit of jealousy ramping up with um, Tom Paris and Balana, you know, who who arrived there, but uh, Edson Vorick swoops in with uh, having having claimed a table at just the right place that uh, Balana will enjoy. I have already taken the liberty of reserving a table, Lieutenant, with a view of the lakeside. You did express a fondness for that particular vista. I did. Five days ago, in a conversation we had in engineering regarding holiday programs. I guess maybe I did. Good memory. Of course. Well then, Ensign, let's go. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cunning on his part, actually. <laughs> and I thought, Quite unvulcan. Yes, that's what I thought. It didn't seem to be in, in, in keeping with the character as we're, uh, as Vulcanism as we're understanding it through the character of Uvok. So I wondered about that. Let's just say there is some foreshadowing. Yeah? <laughs> uh, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to hear more about that uh, in a couple of episodes' time. And, and I do believe that perhaps the first echoes of the Ponfar might be upon us um, during this episode. So um, that'll be fascinating to look at. Um, I, I did my quote of the week uh, was Tom Paris actually saying, uh, Balana, you're looking uh, absolutely tropical um, <laughs> uh, I thought uh, he's, he's, he's going in and then he's pulling out <laughs> um, so, yes you, th yes, you think it might have originally been ravishing or something oh, <laughs> or something like that yes he was cer certainly this was a the romance was love was love was in the air um, on this particular episode with everybody letting their hair down with the lays and the and the, and the Hawaiian shirts so Though it didn't turn sinister, though, mm. with the oh, lines when, I mean, that girl, that holographic mm. white girl was trying to kill Balana with one. I yep. mean, it really turned on its head. I thought that was in some ways, I was kind of expecting it because, you know, from the music and the fact it's deserted, <laughs> something bad's about to happen. But, um, you know, how the whole friendly thing uh, of everyone being relaxed and happy and, turns on its head into something so violent and so, you know, terrorising. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I really do um, like those kind of shifts and, and, and twists. I think that actually really works well when something that is beautiful becomes horrific and something horrific becomes beautiful. I think the pathos in the shift is really good. I, I mentioned before foreshadowing, one of the things I also really love uh, in good writing is when um, the writers pick up something that's gone from before that wasn't foreshadowing and weaves it into the current story. And uh, in particular in this episode, I love the discussion around the episode uh, Elementary, My Dear Data, um, <laughs> where the, the character of um, Moriarty, uh, a holographic character in The Next Generation, is able to take over the ship. And they reference that. Chakotay has the conversation about 
about uh, a, a, um, a hologram that took over the Enterprise. Um, and then again, uh, that is left unresolved in Ship in a Bottle. Um, I am hoping, and, I, and it may just be catfishing, it could just be something made up, uh, but I did see on the internet uh, a poster for... Picard season three the other day, and Picard is in the foreground, and Moriarty is standing <laughs> um, behind him in a sinister way. Um, and um, and and I am hoping that maybe during season three of Picard that Moriarty may return um, to torment the crew of the Enterprise once more. Is this? Uh, I'm gathering Moriarty was the holographic character that took over the ship. From what That's you're correct. saying, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. Well, uh, the thing about a holograph is you can never be certain it's dead, can you? I mean, yes. it can be hiding somewhere in your computer in some dark recess of the memory or something. Yes. Yes, and and Absolutely. we see that, don't we? Where um, uh, Tuvok thinks he's deleted uh, Marina, uh, you know, the holo character, but uh, she reappears. Uh, in his room, having downloaded herself to the uh, the doctor's mobile emitter. Though so, we yes. don't know at that point that she is actually a real being. No, no, that's right. That's right. Um, at that point, we're just thinking of her as a holographic character, and I thought the whole yeah. thing was a bit suspicious at that point, even with the Picard reference. Um, I and thought, it, yeah. And it is far more frightening, I think. I mean, I think we're led with the tensions led away from us a little bit when we discover that it's a human being behind the hologram and that's where human the human being comes from. Well, okay, sorry, a, a sentient a sentient being yes. behind the, uh, the 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 hologram. Whereas Moriarty, played by uh, uh, Daniel Davis, um, is 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 purely like the Doctor, uh, a hologram, but a hologram with with guile and strategy and and no sense of moral uh, a, a a a lawful evil hologram um that is intent on um following his his own sense of uh of, of order um and uh, and that makes him a a much more frightening um kind yeah. of uh, adversary than um than 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 somebody who was puppeted by someone else Yes, I, I have to say one of my quote of the weeks was uh, Tuvok uh, saying to Harry Kim, you're in love with a computer subroutine. And I thought, <laughs> well, that, that's underselling holodeck characters because we know that they can be incredibly, uh, you know, rich and, uh, and whatever. And I, I, think, I think Tuvok was being a, a little nasty there, both to Harry and to computer subroutines. Well, I thought Tuvok was just being Tuvok, actually. I don't know he was really being nasty. That's just the way his brain seems to operate. So I didn't hold that against him because um, if she was a real holodeck character, that's what she'd be, I suppose. And that's the argument, of course, he mounts to Harry when Harry accuses him of sneaking behind his back and playing the Vulcan game with her. And I don't know what Harry thinks Tuvok's doing. Um, and and it, it, It's point, interesting... That, that at the end, you know, Tuvok does have this shift and, and he actually recognises that he hasn't been uh, appropriate in his interactions with Harry and he apologises and invites Harry mm. to, to learn the game. Well, he could, he needs to grow a compassion bone, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and he showed signs of that actually beginning to happen. I thought towards it because, and I thought he was a bit disingenuous because his defence to Harry, who gets all mad, was that, you know, I'm playing this game with a computer subroutine. 
I didn't think that was true entirely. I thought he was much Mm. more attracted to her than he was actually letting on at that point. So he was being quite disingenuous. Now, Star Trek's not the first um, sci-fi franchise to delve into the area of sentient holograms. In fact, one of my favourite sci-fi sentient holograms uh, would have to be Arnold Judas Rimmer um, from uh, Red Dwarf fame. Uh, A hologram I may be, but I'm still the highest-ranking technician aboard this ship. When I say do something, you do it. Understand? Um, and uh, and certainly there's very little to like about Arnold Judas Rimmer, um, which makes him a very lovable character. Um, <laughs> but there've been there've been lots of holograms um, throughout science fiction, and we we've loved to play with this idea of 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 taking the 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 AI into an augmented reality, moving AI to a- AR. Um, and um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, this this level of holographic technology, um, especially hard light holographic technology. Think of all of the things we could get them to do: the dishes, the lawns, the <laughs> vacuuming. Like it would be fantastic. And that would be making some underclass that would probably rise up like how the computer on a space odyssey and turn against us completely if we can find them to our lawn mowing and our dishwashing and our vacuuming. Hmm. What an injustice it would be if the uh, discarded emergency holographic medical program were suddenly um, relegated to cleaning the insides of engines on a regular basis. That would just be um, a terrible eventuality. Let us hope that such a thing never happens in the future. Well, and it, I mean, it's interesting because that's exactly the uh, the, the argument that... Um, uh, is is made, uh, you know, in the um, the measure of a man with uh, data. Your Honour, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Now, sooner or later, this man or others like him will succeed in replicating Commander Data. Now, the decision you reach here today will determine how we will regard this creation of our genius. It will reveal the kind of a people we are, what he is destined to be. It will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some, savagely curtailing them for others. Are you prepared to condemn him and all who come after him to servitude and slavery? Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. And, and uh, Picard talks about, you know, how there's the potential to create an underclass who become just our slaves and, and have to do what we tell them, no matter whether it's below their dignity or whatever. I, and I think the danger isn't just that we're disenfranchising some sort of sentient creature, even if it's an, an you know, artificial intelligence one. The danger is also to us Mm. if you put yourself in a constantly superior position where you believe you have a God-given right to tell this other being, however it got into, you know, into into being, um, you can tell it what to do because it's somehow inferior to you and it should live its life out as an underclass. That doesn't seem to me to be good for us either. And, I mean, I'm watching the federal election at the moment and watching that play out. The number of what I, I would see as Freudian slips with things saying 
along the lines of how dare these independent women challenge these safe liberal seats. They're our seats by right. No seat should be by right in an actual Mm. functioning democracy. So have you been in that seat so long that you now have come to see yourself as somehow superior to anyone else that might challenge you? So Mm. it's as much about the people making those remarks as it is about the people standing against them. You know, you can set up these expectations that aren't healthy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and certainly in that episode, um, um, The Measure of a Man, Whoopi Goldberg's character Guinan really brings that to the fore when she says, um, imagine an army of expendable individuals um, uh, being able to be sent against their will wherever we wanted them to go. Um, it's such a haunting line and, and, and really um, uh, brings home this point to say that, that um, how we treat um, any form of life or intelligence um, is, is of significance. I'm always polite to the uh, scanning um, um, <laughs> machines um, at the, at the shops when they actually say to me, uh, um, uh, follow the pin prob- pin pad prompts um, to to pay my, um, my 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 bits and pieces. I, I think the other the other side of that will is that it, it's it's a nice reminder to us, but also it's the beginning of a track where if we do think that there's the possibility of developing artificial intelligence, I hope that those artificial intelligence have been molded to be thoughtful, to be polite, to be helpful and and not just to be logical because they could very quickly decide that the most logical thing to do is to get rid of human beings who are a bit of a pest for everyone. We, we have a Google Home in our house um, and um, Charlie has actually um, programmed it to um, when he walks into the room and it hears him for the first time in the morning. It actually says to him, good morning. Um, it tells him the weather for the day and it reads him a random poem. Um, <laughs> and um, at the end of that poem, it asks him whether or not he enjoyed that poem or did not, so that the next day it can actually attempt to choose a poem that is more in line with what he is interested in rather than not. And so we have an AI in our kitchen that's actually greeting us, being polite to us, and learning what we like and what we don't like. Oh, that's um, just and so, creepy. So we're getting closer <laughs> and closer to artificial intelligence all the time. I find Alexi and that. The Google thing, just creepy. I'm sorry. Who's the other one? Siri. I mean, the way Siri can just pop up on my phone at random intervals and ask me things because it thought it heard something or I bumped something and that. Mm-hmm. And there was a one um, uh, in, in America, there was a whole spate of Alexis doing this sinister laughter at random <laughs> at night and things like that that was really creeping people out. And I thought, no, nah, I can't have one in my house. That would just absolutely terrify me i'd think it was possessed we did have to adjust our google home because um i had it's amazing what's connected to what i i use google calendar and i had set that i wanted my bedtime routine to be at a certain time i think it's about 10 o'clock at night um and so the google home which is actually plugged into our google lighting system um actually at 10 o'clock at night began to dim the lights slowly um, because it was time to go to bed and I, and I had to go, no, nah, I'm not having a robot telling me that it's time to go to bed. I'm not doing that. So I had to no. actually make that adjustment. My, my watch tells me it's time to go to bed all the, all the time. <laughs> but um, Elizabeth, here's a, a free tip for you. 
that uh, if, if you've got a, an Apple iPhone, if you put your phone face down, Siri will not respond randomly to things. Oh, okay. I'll remember that. It's, and I know it's me because I've, I've tripped something. And I have set it up in my very limited, clunky Luddartness to actually respond to, hey, Siri, because I've found it when I'm driving, <clears throat> that can be really, really useful. Especially yeah. if I want to phone John about something, I can say, hey, Siri, phone John, um, yeah. and it will do it. And I don't have to I'm, I'm, don't have to touch the phone or do anything illegal. And I can tell him that I'm almost there, put the dinner on or whatever it is I need to say. So um, there are aspects of it I find useful. Mm. And I'm sure I could do a lot more with it. But the idea that it's running the house and turning things on and off and reading me random poems, just no. <laughs> I just could not cope with that. One day, Elizabeth, there are aspects of us that Siri will find useful. Oh, thank you, Will. That'll give me nightmares now. <laughs> well, uh, I was just wondering, I might check in with Siri. Hey, hey, Siri. My oh, Siri okay. responded to you. <laughs> what did your Siri say? My Siri she said, said I that. I respect you. Oh, that's good. My Siri said that uh, I think you're pretty great. So there you go. Even Siri's actually don't agree with each other. No. Imagine if one day we get caught in a world where we're stuck between conflicting opinions of AIs. Um, well, um, yeah. on that positive note, um, we should probably bring this episode to a close. Any final thoughts or uh, or other bits and pieces before we finish up today? Oh, thanks for creeping me out. About <laughs> and Alexis and things like that. Good work there, Will. Well, I, I, I have to finish just by saying that, uh, you know, there are a few different candidates, but I think my uh, my quote of the week was uh, uh, Neelix and Tuvok in, in the um, holodeck before the luau where uh, Neelix says, Lieutenant Tuvok, you have neglected to RSVP. And Tuvok replies, that was not an oversight, I assure you. I thought that was that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good quote. You're right, yeah. Lindsay. I don't have a quote of the week, I'm afraid, because I just didn't write stuff down and I don't remember because I was in a rush to get things done before we left, so sorry. It um, it was a fabulous uh, episode with lots of fun lines and, and as you've heard from us today, lots of interesting um, um, threads to pick up and, and run with, just like uh, the, uh, the, the nebula um, that was actually full of these... these um, sparkly threads as well so until next week uh, where we come uh, into an episode um, that is uh, um, all about Janeway next week um, 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 I've been Will Nicholas I'm Lindsay Cullen and I'm Elizabeth Ray ever fell in love with the other